So Kyle, I have a question for you. Let's hear it. I'm wondering, what are your top five movies that Margot Robbie could kill you and you'd say, thank you, ma'am, can I have another? I'm thinking, first up, Wolf of Wall Street. Ooh, good one. For number two, yeah. I'm going to put Suicide Squad. The Big Short. Ooh! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know where she'd for sure kill me. Or I guess not kill, but I, Tanya. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you got another one? No, I'm drawing a blank. All right, I've got number five. Welcome to Off the Film Path. Here we review and discuss movies that, for better or for worse, are less known to the general public. Today we are discussing 2018's Terminal. I'm Kyle. And I'm Sophia. And yes, we would let Margot Robbie kill us and say, thank you, ma'am, may I have another in this movie. Yes. Oh, boy. So this movie has a secret reveal for the lit nerds and the hardcore movie nerds. But we'll get there. I don't want to spoil <laughs> it up front. This is a super stylized movie. And I got to tell you, I really dig the aesthetic. It's wet. It's mildewy. It's it's decay and this rotted facade of ancient buildings and arches and stone construction mixed in thoroughly with a lot of neon and people just being around and vibrant. I really like the aesthetic. Yes. There's a lot of really low lighting to make a very tense mood. Mm. And it breaks that twice that I can remember. One of those was kind of whatever, but the second instance was really good reversal. Yes. So I will say that this movie very effectively builds tension. So this is a thriller and, you know, thrillers, much like, you know, movies are, are a little bit formulaic in certain ways. Like there is a certain formula that you follow to do X, Y, and Z. And to build tension in a thriller, you have to make everything, everything, obviously a red flag that the characters just don't see or don't care to see. And this movie is wall to wall that if literally any actual human person approached me with any line of dialogue from this movie delivered as delivered in this movie, I would call the cops and run away because I'm a smart person. As Sophia described it before we started recording, this is a whole time fuckery movie. Mm -hmm. So we are going to talk about the movie as it appears on screen. And then there's a part where it kind of stops with the fuckery. And I think at that point we'll recap everything. To put it in order. How's that sound? Yeah, yeah, let's let's do that. So there's going to be some voiceover narration that is going to read a passage from Alice in Wonderland and just get used to that because it's not going to get better. It is also underscored by a whistled, oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy. And also a sex worker going to confession in a neon church. Before we get there, though, we also see, like, these flashes of silhouettes, which immediately builds the intrigue. It's like, ooh, what is this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you said, sex worker going to confession. This is Margot Robbie 
We will not learn a lot of characters' names for quite some time after we see them. Her character is Annie. Yes. So immediately disrespectful to the entire process here. So Annie jumps in the confessional booth and is like, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Immediately pulls out a cigarette and starts smoking. (laughs) The priest is like, you can't smoke in here. (laughs) She's like, I guess I've sinned again. Boom. The quote-unquote priest is in fact a person who hires out wet work. So the term for this is a shot caller. Oh, okay. Yes. So the priest is a shot caller, which would be kind of a badass setup. Like this, I think, has probably been covered in like the kind of cheesy Mexican action movies that the guy in Sensate was like starred in. Still have not seen Sensate. Oh, fuck you. I know. Anyway, bad allyship. <laughs> That's true. So Annie wants all of the shot caller's contract. And he says, that's not going to happen. I have a guy or I have several interested parties. So she makes a deal with him and says, all right, I'll tell you what. I will not only kill the competition, I'll have them kill each other. I am going to make these little fuckers destroy each other. Give me two weeks. Also, I need your help with something. I need you to find somebody. And if it succeeds, I get all of your work. If it fails, you get to kill me. This is not a deal a sane person would take. This is not a real world we're dealing with, though. No, no, it's not. So, Phil, you sometimes use the term heightened reality. Mm-hmm. This is extraterrestrial heightened. <laughs> yeah. We are in orbit right now, and it gets better. I'm telling you, I am very excited about this reveal. So, from there, that gets agreed to. We get our shots of this city. There's a lot of neon. Mm-hmm. And we zoom in on this. It says terminal because that's showing the title, but also it's a train terminal. And once we get in, the first thing we see is this bank of monitors. And I think the implication is that it is being viewed by our shot caller. Yes. Now, we don't see the priest's face. We don't actually see anything about the priest. But this bank of televisions is is how operations in and around the terminal are being monitored. Also, he's been talking through a voice modulator. Yes. From here, we go to an apartment, apparently. We briefly see this apartment where these two guys are here. The reason I bring this up is, just to get ahead of this, there's so many Alice in Wonderland references in this. It's almost heavy-handed. Yeah. No, it almost nothing. It is extremely heavy-handed. Yes. Well... None of it means anything. (laughs) I know. It's just like, hey, remember this really cool story? The reason I put this note in here, though, is on the table of our, like, two guys in this apartment, we see a red and a blue container of some kind, which in my mind was like, oh, it's like The Matrix, which also references Alice in Wonderland. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They don't do shit with The Matrix, so, like, don't worry. (laughs) And this is also the point where, like, we meet... So these two characters will find out that their names are Alfred and Vincent, or Vince and Alf. Vince is an extremely brusque, working class, like he's a he's a hitman, he's the experienced one. And Alfred, Alf, is his understudy? Apprentice. Apprentice. And a Nepo baby. And a <laughs> Nepo baby, because this is, was it Michael Irons? Max Irons. Max Irons. Max Irons. Son of Jeremy Irons. 
we don't spend much time with him at the moment. I just needed to bring up the red and blue containers because I thought that was a neat detail that won't come into play. We also see that Vince is very brusque. He's a real asshole. And also he, he reads from the classified ads and like is kind of a dick about it. Yes, we will come back to that where he gets more into it. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. But as you were saying, we mainly see Simon Pegg standing at an empty terminal. Yes. So he is coughing and standing at a terminal when he is approached by Mike Myers. Mike Myers is doing so much work on just the voice. Yes. Then you add in that he is like adding in a very particular physicality. Mm -hmm. And it's like, look, he did the fucking work for this movie. He worked hard yeah. and I don't like most of what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, so, so he plays the night supervisor of the terminal uh, janitor. And so he comes up and sees this guy. It's like late at night. And the guy is standing by the tracks waiting for a train to come. And he says, well, there's no trains coming tonight. The next one's the 404. And it says something that basically means it's making all local stops. All stations to termination is what he says. And just like, that just means it's a local train. Just say it's a local train. It's fine. No, he has to speak in like riddles or something. Yeah. But Simon Pegg. Character's name is Bill. His name is Bill. We won't learn that for quite some time basically implies that he's not really interested in going anywhere. He's looking for a train to throw himself in front of. Yeah, he says, I'm not going anywhere. I just need a train. And Mike Myers says, what kind of person needs a train but isn't going anywhere? And it's like, oh, that's kind of clever. No, yeah, what he says is like, a man who is looking for a train but not going anywhere is a man with a problem. Yeah, and it's like, okay, yeah, that is pretty clever. And then, like, you get flashes that maybe the night soup isn't, like, all there. He's a little goofy. He has that look and air about him. He's like not 100% mentally copious. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a trope of like people in low wage positions who are, as you said, not all there. Yeah, but there is a point where he says something and Bill says like, you're peculiar. And he goes, and you're staring on a platform for a train that is not coming. He's like, oh yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> The way this ends is because there's no train coming, the cleaner suggests Bill check out the end of the line cafe, a diner in the train station. 24 hours. Yes. So Bill makes his way there. He almost gets, he does get mugged, but not really. One of these people is Matthew Lewis from the Harry Potter movies. Look, this is perhaps one of the best scenes in the movie. Very good. So, yeah, I mean, these guys utterly fail to assert dominance rapidly, which is critical in a <laughs> in a mugging situation. So it's just like, give us your wallet! And he's like, absolutely not! I'm very <laughs> disappointed in you boys. <laughs> One of them has a gun, and Bill says, I'll buy it off of you. Oh, hey, suicidal. Yeah. He's like, does it have any bullets? What? And they try and, like, <laughs> bluff for a while, but ultimately, no, there are no bullets in the gun. <laughs> Very disappointed. You've let me down and you've let yourselves down. Something to think about. And then he walks off. I'm just like, Chad. That is Chad behavior. And then we get to this diner 
and we get just a good establishing Margot Robbie, which we love. Yes. You see, Bill is alone in this diner Mm -hmm. and (laughs) tries smoking. Annie, Margot Robbie again, says, you can't smoke in here. He rightly is just like, nobody fucking here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're not smoking either. (laughs) (laughs) But eventually he does get his smokes in. Yep. I have to bring it up now. Bill makes some remark that he almost got mugged. He's like, it's a very naughty world out there. Oh, yeah. So shines a good deed in a naughty world. Right. And Annie teases him by taking the phrase naughty and using it in its other usage. Very, very sexual. Like, she gets extremely sexual about the word naughty. And it's because it makes Bill squirm. The next thing I have is back at the apartment with Vince and Alf. And this is where they're talking about, like, the personal ads. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Vince has pulled up the personal ads in the paper. And, okay, kids, used to be, before there was Tinder, there was a section in your newspaper that you could write a thirsty nonsense post that will just be completely ignored by everybody. It was exactly like Tinder. Yeah. My preferred one, my favorite that I've ever seen was if you like pina coladas. Oh, fuck you. (laughs) Got him. Ugh. Anyway. The point being, Vince is reading between the lines saying like, oh, this person's actually ugly and insecure. This person is a boring suburbanite who wants a dominatrix. Yeah. Has his own dungeon. Exactly. And it's clear that the relationship between Vince and Alf is, at this point, strained. Back to the diner. Yeah. This movie will jump a lot. Yeah, like, trying to follow this in a linear fashion is just fallacy. Don't do it. We find out that Bill has a terminal illness, but it is not cancer. Don't know what it is. Doctor doesn't know what it is. I get the sense that, like, he probably should have gotten a second opinion on this. Yeah. This is the first instance where we see a scene brightly lit when we see him getting the diagnosis. And the doctor's not that interested in figuring out what it is. He's just like, here's a bunch of painkillers. Yeah, he's just like, it's not cancer. Don't know what it is. Smoking the entire time. Offers him a cigarette. He's like, no, thank you. (laughs) Will it be painful? Nah. How do you know? (laughs) Painkillers. But yeah, so we come back and Annie is a little morbid morbidly fascinated with death and starts talking to Bill about his options. I think that comes a lot later, actually. I mean, I think they start talking about it at this point, but they don't get heavy into it until after that. Also importantly, Bill has, like, a spark of recognition about Annie, but, like... Yeah, it's like, have have we met before? I don't know, have we? But now we do a flashback. Yes. So we saw... Annie as a sex worker, kind of like seducing a gentleman caller, a John, if you will, earlier. But here we see the whole thing. And this John is actually a regular hitman, a big hitter. And this is the priest's go-to guy. And she's killing him, killing him slowly, not softly. So it seems that Annie did a lot of research on this guy, which you got to do if you're going to kill someone. Yeah. Or... If you're going to kill a specific person. Yes. And makes mention of using laudanum to knock him out. And I said, what fucking year is this that people are using laudanum? Well, put a pin in that. Because I can tell you almost precisely what year it is. That's wild. 
The man's name is Illing. Mm-hmm. Charles Illing. The first name doesn't Giles matter. Giles Illing? Doesn't matter. Says, I'll give you whatever you want or something. She goes, poor choice of words. Straddles him and I said, takes a trophy slash pound of flesh. She straight up killed him. Yeah, oh yeah. We will eventually find out. So what we find is that the shot caller, whoever he is, requires ID and trigger finger for an assassin that is put down. Like That's the proof of death that he requires. That's the confirmed kill. Yes. No dog tags in this universe. Nope, 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 nope. And then we see her enter the church. Yes. And that brings us to the start. Right, that closes that part out. So that's that handled. Then we go back to the diner, except it's earlier in the timeline even. It's not even the same day. Yes. So here we see Alfred recounting a film to Vincent, sort of like how we do here, except worse and dumber. And without any suspension of disbelief, you motherfucker. That, but like, okay. All right. I have to talk about this because I recently had a thing on Twitter about this exact phenomenon. This isn't about the movie, Kyle. This is about getting your gun out in public and people thinking you're a badass. That's all Alf wants. Alf just wants to be a badass. I know. But he's talking about, like, why didn't they do it right in the movie? It's like, shut the fuck up. Who cares? First off, hitmen are not, like, I mean, they are technically professionals, but, like, there's not a training academy for hitmen. Room clearance is not a thing that a hitman is taught before sent on their first job. It's just like, hey, we got a guy in the basement. Beat him to death for us. That's your entree into the world of contract killing. I was about to say, famously, there was a presidential assassin who was formerly a Marine. Yeah, that's true. That's not exactly a hitman. That's that's a guy who had some issues <laughs> underlying. Fucking whatever. Doesn't matter. Here, we learn that Vince is the villain because he's a complete prick to service workers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's a complete prick to everybody, yeah. in fairness. So, yeah. So, he's extremely rude to Annie, who he calls Bottle Blonde. Bottle Blonde. Yeah. He also has an extremely working class London accent. So, for a completely different, unrelated reason, I had the closed captions on. It did not understand what this man was saying at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was every other word they got right. So, yeah. So Vince calls her bottle blonde and barely puts up with her bullshit, which, to be fair, as a service worker, Annie needs some work. Again, Waffle House. (laughs) I mean, yeah, this is clearly a Waffle House kind of scenario. But to make up for Vince's prickliness... Alf decides to spit game. (laughs) And look, we can't get around this. Alf is handsome. Mm -hmm. Alf's a handsome guy. So this works. And Annie makes some really gross jokes about sticky buns. (laughs) And and, okay, in this moment, Vince is all of us. We're just like, oh, God. Shut the fuck up. Focus up, because we got a job, baby. So... It seems that Vince got a briefcase from a locker in the terminal, and it's all very mysterious. And this is apparently the calling card of a Mr. Franklin. The briefcase contains a stack of cash and a matchbook to Lapine Blanche. Uh, Blanche. La Lapine Blanche. The White Rabbit. Yep. Wh- what could it mean? <laughs> oh, 
We've got more to talk about in terms of Lullapine Blanche. I know. Here's where we get confirmation, though, that Illing was Mr. Franklin's, like, go-to dude. Yeah. And got got. And this is also, by the way, if you're following here, this suggests, but does not confirm, that Mr. Franklin is the priest. Right. Now, this movie does have a very limited cast, so it's like, yeah, it's... But with just all the extras. There are a lot of extras, but there's about five people in the principal cast. Yes. And so we go to La Lapine Blanche. I love this. Alf goes like, I think this is the place. And it's like, what, did the 20-foot white rabbit sign not give it away? <laughs> okay. Give shit. <laughs> it's a keyhole. The the door to the fucking strip club is a keyhole. Of... <sighs> then we go in, we see someone dressed as a royalty, as in Queen of Hearts. Oh, yeah. There's someone smoking hookah, and I think that's meant to be the caterpillar. Yep. I'm trying to remember if there was any other reference. I didn't see any. No. But look, this whole thing is built into the atrium of like the confluence of of tall apartment buildings. And it's clear that like the apartment buildings are not like currently being used as such. But it's very, very interesting stylized strip club. You don't really see strip clubs like this, but it's a big hole, basically. And you start at the top and you have to go down the rabbit hole. And then they talk to... Talk to a woman named Canejo. For those of you who do not speak Spanish, Canejo means rabbit. Cool. Just get used to this. It's such a thing. Kind of. They drop it after this one almost. Do they? A little bit. But it sounds like these two dudes are there to see a person named Bunny. (sighs) God. (laughs) And Bunny comes out does some dancing, turns to Vince, who was like, oh, that's who we need to talk to. And it's Annie? Yes. And we find this out in a very Dick Tracy-like shadow and then like light across her eyes. And like you see that bright green of Annie's eyes. And she's like, oh, blonde. What are you doing here? Yeah. So, so the money was for her to get a briefcase to Vince that actually has like instructions for the job because this guy is just a fucking nightmare to work for yeah there's so many unnecessary briefcases so many they go to a back room they do the exchange vince is like nah i want my lap dance and she's like how about this for a lap dance pulls out a gun and he goes all right well he doesn't say all right alf's like come on let's go yeah and as they're leaving annie kisses alf yeah and it's uh she's she's gratuitous yeah it's gratuitous and she's giving it her all, shall we say, implying that he should come back alone sometime, which just puts Vince in a great mood. Back to the diner with Bill. Yeah. Okay. So now Bill and Annie are talking philosophy, I think. Yes. One big thing we learn is that Annie is an orphan and her mom died in a fire. Yes. And we also learn that Bill is an English teacher in the best way possible. Yeah. He corrects her grammar and she goes, what are you, a dying English teacher? And he's like, yeah. And he seems to be under the impression that because he's dying, he can just kind of do whatever he wants because consequences be damned. And he is very macabre. (laughs) That's all I have on this scene. Yeah. Honestly, there's not much more. We go to Vince 
in the terminal again, getting another briefcase. This part I super don't understand. Okay. So the way I figure what happened was the briefcase they got from Annie had instructions for picking up another suitcase, which will have instructions for, like, how to get to the assignment. Okay. Three briefcases, apparently. We're at three right now. Yes. There are more. Yes. So Vince is breaking into a locker and then gets accosted by the cleaner. Yeah, Night Soup catches up with him and bribes him. Or, like, demands a bribe, rather, in exchange for not reporting the break-in. Hey. Yeah. So, in reality, hitmen tend to be, like, not the cold, methodical type of people that, you know, you figure, but more often, like, professional repeat hitmen are desperate psychopaths. Don't try to get a bribe out of them. I mean, because they don't mind killing you. Yeah. To give a little character to this, the way that the cleaner solicits this bribe is he says, acceptable forms of payment in the terminal are as follows. Cash, banker's check, or some kind of like return slip up to the value of the trip or something or other. Yeah. He seems to, and this is one of those reasons that you think maybe he's not all there is because like he clearly like memorized the guidebook for his job and that's the only way he interacts with people. He then also tries to ask Vince for more money, more than like 30, I'll call it pounds. When a rich villain has need of a poor villain, the poor villain may ask what he will. Well, I want more money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Vince threatens quite a bit of violence to basically say, go fuck yourself. Yeah. And she's like, all right, all right, fine. Vince is heading back to the diner and on his way almost gets accosted by those two thugs again. <laughs> but again, these guys' big problem is they are not asserting rapid dominance. So like he comes up, he's doing the thing where he's walking straight towards him like with purpose and Vince is just like, fuck off before he even starts. It's just now occurring to me that because of the time fuckery, this actually happened before the other time. Oh yeah, that's true. It doesn't mean much, but what's funny is they do switch roles. That's, oh yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Okay. So the second time, I guess they were like, oh, the chubby ginger is not intimidating. Matthew Lewis will be the one to like initiate. Nope. <laughs> I don't know. I... He got owned by a school teacher. Yep. Yeah, back at the diner, Annie and Alf are being flirtatious more. I think actually straight up just making out on the counter. They do at one point. Yeah. But, you know, Vince and Annie are, are like, building a very a rapport in Vince's own idiom, which Annie doesn't really Annie? appreciate. No, Vince. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Like, it's developing into this extremely violent, if slightly flirtatious, understanding. It's a hate-hate, almost, but in the same way, it's like, I'm not going to kill you, you're too much fun. <laughs> yes, that. I'm going to have to reference the Joker later. <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. They get a Mr. Franklin voice recording that says, I need to meet one of you face-to-face, -face, but just one of you. Yep. And so this is a job for Vince. And so Vince goes to this hotel. Okay, this hotel doesn't make sense to me. No. But, oh boy, does this movie know how to build some fucking atmosphere. So, so Vince goes up this, like, spiral staircase that's kind of backlit blue. And someone's already there. Yeah. 
who could it be? Who could it be? The woman in the mysterious red coat. Yeah, so mysterious red coat in a like, oh, oh, what do you call it? The lights are flashing red, but like they're going in a direction. I see. Yeah. So it's like, it's like a wave. Yes. I don't know if there's a term for that. There is, and I can't think of what it is. But also, it's backlit so much, you're just getting silhouette. And you get a close-up silhouette of Bo Blunt. Good evening. So she wordlessly is just walking through this building, and he's curious, so he follows her. This professional killer, this person who exists to kill other people, didn't think it was weird that she just keeps showing up everywhere. Plot hole. No. No, this is what I mean when I say, like, it builds tension by everything being a red flag. Like, I am not a professional criminal, much less a professional killer. I know better than this. While Vince is doing this, we see Alf return to the diner alone, where Annie is waiting for him. Yes, they are meeting for a date. They're both cleaned up real nice. And this is all pretense, though, because Annie has something that she needs to tell Alf. And because Alf is a big, horny dumbass, it takes a second to break him out of that big, horny dumbass mode. But once he does, in comes the night supervisor with a briefcase. Another goddamn briefcase. (laughs) Yeah. So we, we, we cut back to Vince at this point in a room and the phone rings and it's Mr. Franklin. Another fucking reference. Not face to face. It's a phone. But it says, press me. Sort of in the style of eat me or drink me from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and suitcase number... Actually, this is five because four is in the diner. The one in the diner has to be five. Yeah, this one's four. The one in the diner is five. So I will say here... <laughs> this is a weird... Like, the dialogue here is very weird because it's Vince in his idiom where he's like, Mr. fucking Franklin, I assume. He's like, yeah, so let me get this straight. You pull me out here on the other end of the city, middle of the night, freezing cold, just to talk to you on a phone. And Mr. Franklin's like, who says mystery is a lost art? And like, given his character, as I've been building it in my head, watching this, like, I expected him to have like a snide kind of asshole-ish reaction to this. Nah, fair enough. Because he said, who says mystery is a lost art when he gets the first briefcase. Alf says it. No, Vince says it. Here's what is discussed, though. It's, here's the job, but also, I want you to kill your partner. Why? And he's like, because I can ask that of you. Yeah, essentially. And so, here we cut back to the diner. Holy shit, this movie. Here we cut back to the diner, and the night soup is playing a recording of this conversation with both ends of the conversation. So, we're seeing it at the same time, but it's clear that... Alf in the Diner happens after. Yes. Or I say it's clear. It's a little not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And honestly, that ambiguity is going to be important in a bit. So, yeah. So so Alf hears that Vince is gonna has agreed to kill him in exchange for briefcase number four, which is full of apparently double the contract fee. And he freaks out and then makes an alliance with Annie. They're going to kill Vince. He also nearly kills the night supervisor. Yeah, I think he was probably bluffing because he's an asshole. He is because we hear the click of a trigger pull and nothing happens. Yeah, which means... Could this movie just not afford bullets? Like, what the fuck happened? (laughs) 
Well, apparently it could because we see some later. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but yeah. So assholes. Assholes all around. But yeah, so so they decide they're going to whack Vince before Vince can whack Alf. And again, it's the flimsiest excuse because Alf correctly goes to like, wait a second, why should I trust you? And her entire reasoning, and I'm not playing this up or, or like misrepresenting this is, I told you, I like you. I like your jaw. Red flag. <laughs> hey, what's Bill up to? At this point, I believe they are like talking about how they're going to go about it. Oh, wait, did they pull up the liquor at this point? Liquor? Yeah. They're talking about different suicide methods. Okay, so they definitely did pull out the liquor at this point. Here is the reveal. Hey, Kyle. Yeah? What's the bottle say? I don't remember seeing a bottle, so... So Annie pulls out a bottle of liquor, and the bottle of liquor has the word victory on it. It's victory gin, which means this takes place in 1984, the George Orwell novel. Is that in 1984? Yes, Victory Gin is a huge part of 1984. It's basically the opiate of the masses. <laughs> There's a lot that happens in that book, so forgive me. No, no, you're all right. So so the big reveal is that this is all taking place in the prole section of Airstrip 1 from 1984. And this actually ends up, this kind of works because canonically in 1984, the prole sector is mostly unmolested until you start getting rebellious then the thought police kind of come in and take care of some things. There is a... Fuck it, I'll just say it now. Later, we go away from the diner at a certain point and then come back, and at that time we come back, Bill makes a reference to the Swiss. Ah, yes, another thing. Like, Switzerland doesn't exist in the 1984 universe. It's part of Eurasia. So, yeah, she goes, it was very popular among the Swiss. She goes, what's a Swiss? What's a Swiss? Don't worry about it. But back to where we were. They're talking about different ways they could kill themselves. And Bill's really hesitant, which is weird, because he was introduced by wanting to jump in front of a train. Uh-huh. So Bill is dying painfully and would prefer to go quickly. But apparently never occurred to him to just, like, take 40 paracetamol with a shot of liquor. Apparently Apparently there's only one church in this place because he goes to that same church for confession. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, that's right. And then, like, gets fussy with the priest. Yeah, because he doesn't do confession. Here's the fucking Joker reference I was going to make. And he goes, hey, what about slam your head on a pencil? Yeah. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to make this pencil disappear. Voila! <laughs> <It's gone. laughs> yeah, so, so Annie suggests that and he's like, the pencil, I don't like the pencil thing. It's not very sharp. And she's like, we well, have a very nice pen there. And it would be poetically resonant. An English teacher killed by his own fountain pen. And that puts them on the track to kind of like narrowing down how they'll do this. Because he likes the poetic resonance. I think from here we go back to the apartment. Yes. So the instructions from Mr. Franklin are that they're going to get put up in an apartment. They're to be on call 24-7. And... They will be contacted when it is time to execute the hit. This apartment is dingy, disgusting, and poorly appointed. I believe at this point they said they've been there for 12 days. Yes. 12 days, 13 hours, and 27 minutes. They are getting stir-crazy. As one would. Alf suggests playing cards, but the deck is like, they only have like half the cards. Yeah. There's some 
atrocious background music in this scene. It's so annoying. Okay, I will say it gets a little bit better if you're playing it at two times speed, as I did through the... (laughs) (laughs) And then as they're, like, rummaging through this apartment to figure out what the fuck they can do, Alf reads some Lewis Carroll. Yep, and he's like, the whole fucking book is like this. It's like, I'm sure Lewis Carroll will be suitably chastened by your criticism. I'll let him know. It's not from Alice in Wonderland, right? It's just his poetry. I think it is. I think it is from Alice in Wonderland. Okay. Back to the diner, I guess. I don't know if there's much else in the apartment. Yeah, at this point, I think Annie takes Bill on a field trip. One thing before that. What am I missing? They talk about euthanasia, assisted suicide. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Annie's like, well, my boyfriend's a hitman, so he can probably help. And they go over a couple ideas, and ultimately... Bill doesn't go for it. We also cut back real quick to the apartment and they're super getting on each other's nerves. And Vince, like, almost unprovoked, tries to flex authorities. Like, I'm the guy with the job and you're just my assistant or something. Yeah, it's annoying. Vince is a prick and he honestly, I don't have a whole lot of pity for him. But Alf also needles him quite a bit. (laughs) Yeah, Alf, Alf is not innocent in this, but like... You don't get a whole lot of placid characters doing contract hits. Before we go off on the adventure that Sophia referred to, we learn the term pathetic fallacy. We learn it because Annie takes it the wrong way and takes it in the context of like, you know, what the words actually mean, like a fallacy, which is pathetic. Yeah, I was like, this term does not appear like it goes with its meaning. Yes. And she claps back pretty well. I think she said, what was it? Pompous librarian? whinging whinging librarian which i'm like "Mm, get it hit harder what this means is when the material world is reflective of inner turmoil or inner feeling yeah and the example used here is it would feel discordant if your serial killer stabbed somebody to death in a sunny day on the park wouldn't it no it's better when it's you know in a flash of lightning in a thunderstorm or whatever mood it helps with mood yes But now we go on to the adventure, and where are we going to? We are going to a big bottomless hole, and the pitch is... Why don't you just jump, man? They had talked earlier that Bill was not unopposed to just falling to his death. Yeah, and like, in the context of then getting hit by a train, getting turned into strawberry jam and teeth fillings. Yeah, yeah. That's evocative. That is evocative. In the military, we use the term pink mist in memories a lot. But yeah, so they go up to this hole and they're like, well, why don't you just uh, you know, stop thinking, get out of your head and take a walk. Annie goes up to the edge and is very comfortable facing mortality. And Bill is terrified. Yeah. And she like fake pushes him, like catches him and pulls him back onto the rail. And then steps to the other side and says, come on, just, just walk. Just do it. Do it, you fucking pussy. Do it. And he's like, no, I don't want to do it like this. And she walks away. How disappointing. That gets him mad. He confronts her over a casual approach to death and general attention-seeking behavior. Which, from his position as, like, a schoolteacher, I can see how you would come to that conclusion. That said, he's being an ass. And here we come to the climax of this particular relationship wherein it is revealed that they have met before. Do you want to take this one or you want me to do it? I can take it. Go for it. 
So Bill, as we know, was an English teacher. But it turns out he taught English at an orphanage and uh, did some other stuff at this orphanage. I will note here that he is seen berating two girls. And it seems that he abused Annie at this orphanage. So now she has tracked him down for revenge. So she stole his pen in her particular idiom where she's like, it doesn't matter. Here, take the pencil. Switch. Done. But anyway, so at this point, the cap comes off the pen and she she closes in on him like, I've been waiting all night for you to remember me. Just inches away waiting for you to remember and then just stabs him in the neck and sends him down the hole with what is probably the most brutal line in the entire movie. You're afraid to die because you know exactly where you're going. And then kicks him down the hole. Hell yeah. Fuck yeah. Rapist gets stabbed in the neck and thrown down a hole. So, with that storyline wrapped up, we have to go back to Vince and Alf. Yas. So, Vince and Alf... They get the call that it's time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is go time. And they are fucking finally. Yes. So, Vince is going to take the shot. And Alf is going to sit on the phone coordinating with... Who we're meant to think is Mr. Franklin. But as it turns out, it's Annie. And Vince sees her in the scope and just looking up at him like, gotcha. And then he feels the muzzle of a gun against the back of his head. And the double has been crossed. (laughs) (laughs) So Annie comes over to the apartment while Alf holds him incapacitated. And they talk some shit. Vince talks some shit back. He's better at talking shit than they are. So Annie's talking shit because she's also a part of this. She refers to him as Vincent Iscariot. And for that split second, I thought that was his actual last name. Mm-hmm. And that is like a very clever thing. But then she continues and it's like, oh, you're teasing. And- oh, right. So the reason that that like hit for me, like I thought that for a second was because just a few minutes earlier, we had learned Bill's last name, Brainwith. Braithwaite. Braithwaite. That's right. Braithwaite. Just before he gets stabbed and chucked down a hole where he fucking belongs. Is that some kind of reference or illusion? No, that's just his name. I don't think. Maybe it is. I don't think so either, but Iscariot for sure is. Yeah, that's a that's a Judas reference. And, you know, in case you missed it, she goes on to say, like, you sold out your partner for 30 pieces of silver. That's blunt enough that even I, person born and raised Jewish, I'm aware of. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's become such a cultural, like, touchstone that it's hard not to. I've also seen Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) (laughs) Wowza. Okay. So, also, Annie, like, sarcastically says, like, yeah, Vince, I'm the mastermind. And then Alf shoots him, and they get cleaned up and go on a date. Yes. The cleaner shows up to clean the apartment. Yeah, it's it's the night soup, because this place is adjacent to the terminal. He's very upset about having to clean up a body. Yeah. So then we go to the terminal where Alf is all cleaned up, ready to go on his date with Annie. And Annie shows up and the cross is tripled. Yes. She disappears for a hot minute and then reappears. And that like helps build the tension of this scene. We're not doing it justice by talking about it. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, because like, honestly... Regardless of how we rate this movie, I still view it as a good waste of, you know, an hour and a half if you've got an hour and a half and nothing important that you need to do with your brain. So I don't want to spoil the entire movie, but like 
she's talking to somebody and then turns around and is surprised to see the night supervisor who Alf, just before he got got, put like two and two together and figured out that that was who she was working with. Yes. So at this point, we should be putting some pieces together in our heads, but don't feel bad if it's not apparent on the first watch through. And he kills Alf. Yes. And she and the night soup have a conversation about how to dispose of the bodies. I'm going to take a pause here because as I said at the top, there's a part where it starts getting more linear. Mm -hmm. The rest of the movie is linear from this point. So let's do a quick recap of events to put things in order. Okay. So first things first chronologically is killing Illing. Yes. Killing Illing. I like it. So killing Illing, presenting that to the... No. No. The bet with the priest, killing Illing. I thought she had to kill him before that. Mm -mm. Oh, I see. That was part of it. Yeah. Okay. Right, because both. Right. So bet with shot caller, killing Illing, setting up Vince and Alf. They go to the club. Vince meets with Franklin. Alf learns about this soon-to-be betrayal. Mm -hmm. They go to their apartment. That lasts 12 days in universe. On that 12th day is the whole Bill storyline. Yes. Then we get back to Vince and Alf. They do their job with the double cross and both of them are dead. We've reached this point. Yes. Also from here, there are big spoilers. Yeah. As you said, the cleaner and Annie dispose of the bodies and are going their separate ways. And we follow the cleaner. Why do we follow the cleaner, Kyle? Because we get back to the place labeled janitor's closet and it turns out this is a expansive expansive it's a larger than you would expect layer with a bank of cctvs yes and as it turns out the entire silly night supervisor guy who's maybe not right in the head and has a terrible limp and has like extremely working class facial scarring and like everything else that's all makeup and an act and it turns out that Mr. Franklin, who is the night supervisor, who is also Mike Myers. Yes, again, this is Mike Myers. <laughs> is very well put together and in fact loves a good cappuccino. So I don't know why, but he's going to the 404 train that he referenced. Oh no, he, he notes it's coming. Like That's what it is. But he's leaving his lair now in his not disguise. And here we see something that is either supernaturally creepy or something that maybe you've put together you see annie on one side of the hall and then on the other side of the hall almost instantly and then on the other side of the hall again where she finally gets mr franklin's attention he is surprised that she knows that the night supervisor and mr franklin are one and the same yes and so he all right well what do you want there are two things in the world that people never expect and twins! Twins. Clock. Okay, so now we are descending into the Principality of Gross. I'm going to go ahead and throw a content warning here. If you have any kind of medical trauma, we'll see you next time. I will say this twins reveal was kind of hinted at. Yeah, like I said, Braithwaite was berating two identical girls. We've seen, like, they appear to be in multiple places at once, so either Annie can teleport, or there is another one. <laughs> also, both Vince and Alf make comments of, like, something seems different about you. Yes. So, 
This is now a brightly lit surgical suite style, but it is ultimately Mr. Franklin's lair. Is painfully brightly lit. Like, so we've been in this dark, dingy, kind of like moody, it could be sexy under the right circumstances, neon bathe nighttime thing. We're now in an OR. Like, it's very brightly lit, and the girls are dressed as nurses. Margot Robbie as a nurse? How are we feeling? Look, <laughs> I will say this Margot Robbie as a nurse. Without the lobotomy pick, chef's kiss. With the lobotomy pick, um, I'll pass. I'll look from afar. <laughs> yeah, well, look is a strong word. <laughs> we learn that Mr. Franklin is also known as Clinton Sharp. And Mr. Clinton Sharp is, in fact, their dad. He started off as a uh, contract killer in... The precinct is what this area of the city is called. And he met a young lady who had come to definitely not Airstrip One in search for adventure and fell into this particular man's arms and had twins by him. Secretly. Secretly, because she knows he is not the kind of guy you want to have kids with or like display vulnerabilities around i want to point out one thing yeah i hate to make this reference but there's a family guy joke about how i met your mother how it's weird that bob saget is the narrator because it's like it implies that josh radner grows into bob saget so like it's kind of weird that like they show clinton sharp and he is just like an adult man and the implication that he grows into mike myers is very strange. I gotta tell you, the whole Josh Radner into Bob Saget thing, there is a banger of a young girl's joke in there somewhere, but I can't quite get there. Fuck. <laughs> I'm a little too classy to make that one, to, to bring that to fruition. Yeah. However, their mom, I forget her name. Charlotte something, or Carolyn yes. maybe. Apparently read them Alice in Wonderland every night. Their favorite book. They could recite it by page and line number, which nerd. The two of them talk in, it's not in sync, but they pick up where the other left off in such a way. It's like, oh, this is a such a rehearsed performance. I mean, that's because we're watching a movie. Well, it's a Tweedledee Tweedledum thing. Yes, which Sharp makes a joke about. Yeah, and... Okay, so the Alice in Wonderland thing that had Helena Bonham Carter as the Red Queen, I can't remember who else. Oh, Johnny Depp. As the Mad Hatter, Crispin Glover as, like, the Thane of... Yeah. Alan Rickman as the Caterpillar. Uh-huh. Oh, that's right, that's right. And, yeah, so so that version of Tweedledee and Tweedledum was creepy for a different reason. This is just scary. That was the CGI. Yeah, the CGI was way into the Uncanny Valley on that one. But... Yeah, so so this is creepy because Tweedledee and Tweedledum are about to fucking rip your guts out. So that's going to hurt. What unfolded, though, is that their mother saw Clinton do a hit. He was on a job. And Clinton is a professional, so he has to tie up loose ends. Yes. So he burns their apartment down. And mom was able to get them out, but wasn't able to escape herself. So... They went to the orphanage where they met Bill and 
then became homeless after they left the orphanage, living in the terminal until they heard the night soup doing the thing that Clinton always did. Whistle while you work. Whistling, specifically, Danny Boy while he works. And at that point, they set their sinister plan into motion. He tries to exercise like some parental authority and... There's a thing that Margot Robbie does. She goes, too little, too late, and moves her arms in a particular way of just, like, of restraining him. That, like, everything all together, I was like, oh, that's a neat little thing. You know, I missed it, and I think it was probably because I was speeding through that second rewatch. Oh, yeah. No, it's a little detail that's not a make-or-break thing, but I was just like, oh, that's neat. Yeah. And they lobotomize him. Like, there's not much else. They lobotomize him. <laughs> Transorbital lobotomy is a gruesome, horrific practice that is probably one of the darker chapters in medical history. I mean, there are some really dark shit in medical history. Like, So in the Coast Guard, we use survivability tables to determine how long to continue search and rescue operations. There's no nice way around this. That was That's Nazi science from concentration camps. Survival tables? Yeah, so essentially they say, like, if the water is this temperature... A human person will survive for this long in it. Okay. Oh, the science to determine, to learn that. And that was done by Nazis dunking Jews in cold-ass water to see how long they survive. It's bad, and they do not shy away from how gross and awful this procedure is. Yeah, so for those who are blissfully unaware, guess what? I'm about to ruin it for you. Transorbital lobotomies, you take this big railroad spike-looking thing, and... There are two different procedures. It either goes in through the top of the eye or they had one where it would go up your nostril and they would like keep it against the top of your nostril so that it wouldn't basically go in the same place. The point is they tap it with a hammer and it would pierce a thin part of your skull and send that spike directly into your frontal lobe and you could sever nerves there. It's not very precise. No. The medical science of the time would say that the result was a more, and big air quotes here, more placid individual. Docile. Yeah. It destroyed the personality. Like, the person was a shambling zombie after that. Hey, we brought up the Kennedys once. Want to do that again? (sighs) Yes, one of the Kennedys had a, a daughter, and that was such a medical abhorrence at the time that they preferred to have a zombie daughter than a gay daughter. Fucking Kennedys. Fucking, the past was always awful. The present's pretty bad, too. <laughs> President, great. They leave together out of the terminal, and we roll credits. Holy shit, this movie's over. Okay. I pulled two big themes out of this. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, Alice in Wonderland. Yes, and along with that, though, are things not being as they appear. Mm-hmm. Those two twists at the end really bring that home. Yep. The other is that consequences will come home to roost. So I kind of like, obviously, it's hard to avoid Alice in Wonderland as a theme here. Mm -hmm. And what I took from that was sort of stepping back away from it and zooming out a little bit. Unreality heightening reality, if that makes sense. So like the unreality of the world that exists, it fits into... As I said, this this takes place in, in Airstrip 1 from 1984, and I stand by that, not as a joke, like that's my serious analytical take, and not just because of the victory gym. So Airstrip 1 in uh, 1984 is this like falling apart, decrepit thing, like it, it's a disgusting slum, even in the 
part of town where the party members live. The people who are not party members, like the mass of people, most of the population are called, if you don't remember or haven't read it, they're called proles, which is obviously a derivation of proletariat. So the proles and the prole section of town is obviously not as privileged as the parts of Airstrip 1 where the party members live, but also the parts where the party members live is like really fucked up. So like the parole section is not better. So that we, we get this, this rotten decay and this heightened reality kind of situation sort of just enforces that life goes on and, you know, certain things ring eternal, the compulsion to respond to a lack of a thing that you need responding to that with crime is, you know, is always going to be there. So I took that from this. Also, I feel like I had a, another point, but it's just fucking fled my skull. So we'll call it there. I had a whole other thing. Alice in Wonderland, correct me if I'm wrong, a big point of it is like to get through this crazy world, you have to lean into it a little bit. You have to be unafraid to go a little bit crazy. Yes. And I think this movie stays consistent with that is that to operate in this world of murder you have to be willing to do some dirty work yeah like the world that you exist in is completely fucked in the head and you're not going to survive it unless you are also fucked in the head now i i don't necessarily agree with that in general but it is at least consistent internally yeah that, that's the message the movie is getting across i don't have other analysis but i do have a couple thoughts go for it first the lighting in this is like far more intentional than like a lot of movies. Yes. So if you watch just like a blockbuster, one, so many movies have atrocious lighting now. I, I don't understand. TV especially has atrocious lighting. But like if you watch like, I don't know, a Marvel movie, the lighting isn't adding anything, really. This uses lighting spectacularly. Yes. This movie's also kind of like a play, because if you watch a lot of plays, they're written and typically performed in a very particular, almost like cadence, as well as their approach to their meaning. They're like, nah, you figure it out. And I get it, because it's good to not be spoon-fed a meaning. Yeah. Also, the way that it's delivered, I mean, we come back to the unreality of it, and that heightened reality is part of one way that plays are delivered it's effective in plays i think it's less effective in film and tv mm -hmm. and finally we have would you say five principal characters alf vince bill annie and franklin yeah i had this thought while i was watching vince and alf go at it imagine this movie but it's the cast of it's always sunny in philadelphia I hate that. Obviously, Frank is Mr. Franklin. Yes. That means D is Annie. I think Charlie's Bill. Is he? I think he would be. Because I think Mac and Dennis butt heads way more yeah, in the fair. way that Vince and Alf do. Yeah, that's fair. So then probably Dennis would be Vince and Mac would be Alf. I don't know. I always I always come back to the Pepe Sylvia thing and like that that synergy just like That is true. But also in the first season, Charlie faked having cancer. <laughs> so like... Okay, so there's more to it than that. I'm not a huge Always Sunny fan. So like people have told me it's like, well, they're assholes, but they get what they deserve. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to watch that though. 
certain episodes are good. There are far better than others. Mm-hmm. But don't waste time watching shit you don't want to watch. Yeah. Okay, I think that's all I got. You got anything else? No. Let's get into ratings. Ratings! On a scale of 1 to 10 of just enjoyability, where are you putting this? Um, I think I enjoyed this a little more than you did. I would say probably 6. And I'm going 4.5. Yeah. It's not nothing, but it's just like, eh. It's not one that I'm going to seek out, but if it's on, it's fun. And then Obscurity, with one being Best Picture nominee, ten being Literal Student Film, how obscure? Well, okay, so we've got Margot Robbie and Mike Myers. That does some heavy lifting, but also... And Simon Pegg. And Simon Pegg. Between the three of them, this should have been, like, a much bigger deal than it was. I think I remember this being released directly to Hulu, but it's now free on YouTube. And Tubi! Who cares? Exactly. I also think that this was not produced in america i mean i would think not like nobody 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 has an american accent that's true but my point is sometimes things that are not specifically from america don't get a lot of attention in america that's true so i'm leaning towards like a six and a half i'm gonna say i was gonna go with a seven so that works all right yeah As we wrap up our episode, we end, of course, with our pop culture pop-out, a piece of pop culture we have been interested in as of late and just want to talk about for a little bit. Sophia, why don't you start us off? Okay, so I have been having just a bout of, like, internet salmonella, and this particular strain of internet salmonella is anti-vaxxers who are pretending they're having a violent reaction to the vaccine. So if you haven't noticed, recently... A bunch of boomers have been faking like having seizures from the vaccine and saying things like, hold on, I want to pull this up. I want to read this to you because like, wowza. So this anti-vax like TV health doctor tweets, urgent, Angelia, 45, a healthcare worker was mandated to take Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine three days later, paralyzed from the legs down. The video, by the way, is of her having full body seizures, followed by severe convulsions and seizures. Oh, by the way, these are fake. (laughs) Can no longer, comma, cook, comma, clean, comma, drive a car, comma, requires full-time caretaker, comma, I'm a prisoner in my own home. So the next thing in the thread is her testifying before Congress, because again, she's a prisoner in her own home, obviously. So she's in Congress testifying about the dangers of the vaccine. Not you know, having any trembles at all or any effects or anything like that, because she requires a full-time carer who is not present. How'd you get to Congress? Anyway, the point is, this is all very fake. Like you look at the video and you're just like, this is insane. You can't possibly think that's real, but this is an entire genre of thing that is happening on Twitter right now. And it might be my favorite thing because they are so bad. It's like fucking Danny Zuko at the end of Greece. I got chills them multiplying. It's like, yeah, it's not like, it's not a seizure. You're just shaken. One video was of a woman drinking the last of a Heineken and like her hand is shaking really bad. It gets worse because she finishes taking the drink. Her other hand is perfectly still. It's on the table, perfectly still. She finishes taking the drink, sets the beer down. Her shaking hand stops shaking as she pushes the stop button on the camera. Just like, 
Guys, you can edit the video. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Fucking stupid. It's not even that hard. <laughs> anyway, that's my pop culture pop out. Kyle, what has been diseasing your brain? I watched a Netflix limited series called Kaleidoscope. Have you heard of this? I've not. It is a heist drama starring Giancarlo Esposito. And the gimmick is that you can watch the episodes in any order. Now, that's not entirely true. Because there's some episodes I for sure would not start with having now seen the whole thing. And there's one episode that you absolutely should save for last. Okay, so that explains why it's called Kaleidoscope. It bothered me for a second because I'm like, that's what you call like a sci-fi drama. Yeah. Or like a supernatural thing. And all the episodes have color names. It is a good show. And I was keeping in mind, it's like, okay, how would this episode have worked? in relation to others, depending on the order. It's generally pretty good. Okay. It's eight episodes. They're about 40 to 50 minutes. Some go up to an hour, but okay. And if you look on my Twitter, I tweeted out what order I watched it, if you want to have the same experience as me. Mm. But I did not do the Netflix default order. Okay, okay, interesting. I'll have to do that. I'm sorry, I have one other thing that I wanted to point out about the anti-vaxxers pretending to be vaxxed. Cool, let's hear it. The lady who testified to Congress said that it was hard for her to go to a football game because you can't get in if you're not vaxxed. The video is your reaction to the vaccine. What are you talking about? (laughs) Fuck, these people are stupid. I'm sorry, continue. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, Sophia, where can people find you online? I am losing my shit on Twitter at Hamilcarina, H-A-M-I-L-C-A-R-E-N-I-N-A. There's a link tree. It'll have all my shit. I'm on Hive when it decides it's working. You find me on Instagram, H underscore MDT. I'm on Quora, hating every second of that, but that's where I have my biggest audience, so that's where I share my work that I'm hoping to monetize. I have that over on Medium at Clearinghouse. I'm on Post. I'm on fucking everything. I'm on Tumblr. That's right. I'm on Tumblr. Pretty transy, pretty pretty. And that's more or less it for me. Kyle, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter, at Kyle the Giggles. I'm on Tumblr, Letterboxd, and Twitch under Hebro Hammer. We also have a Twitter account, at Off the Film Path, where we talk about movies we've been watching to talk about the movies we are going to watch and talk about. There's a lot of talking. There is a lot of talking. We like the sound of our voices, apparently. We wouldn't be podcasters otherwise. If you would like, there's a link at the bottom of our show notes where you can leave a voice message to appear in an upcoming episode, whether to leave your own pop culture pop out or talk about the movies we discuss. But in order to get in on the next one, Sophia, what are we watching? Next time we are watching Playing It Cool. And hopefully we will have a guest for that. I'm excited. Thank you very much for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. Tell your friends about this so they can learn bizarre cinema yeah so what you're going to want to do here is you're going to want to take a contract out for the guy that's been your white whale forever and have it so that the getaway car spells out the name of the podcast on the streets as he's getting away so i was going to say just load up one of our episodes on an mp3 player and leave it in a black briefcase in a 
locker in like a bus or train terminal. Now, you probably shouldn't do that because people get real suspicious post 9-11. Yeah, that's a great way to get yourself shot or worse, detained by DHS. Fine, just deliver it to someone who you think should listen to the show. That works. Anonymously, though, you got to make sure it's an anonymous pickup. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye.